0: Together, we have transformed American consciousness as to what kind of nation we can become and have taken this country a major step forward in the never-ending struggle for economic justice, social justice, racial justice, and environmental justice.
1: That's a whole lot of justice. It would be nice to move forward, wouldn't it? something right. Never is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how
2: I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From
1: Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso. And Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. Hope you all are well there. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe, even during pandemics. On the Internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Nicole Sandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker and all-around swell fellow, says me from Bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast, or as we call it, Radio to Quarantine, by Delighted, Honored, you are here with us. Delighted, Honored, also, that Desi Doyen is along with us today. (laughs) How are you holding up?
2: I am holding up.
1: All right, right. coming up shortly, uh, we will be joined by Alabama's former governor, Don Siegelman, governor and longtime political prisoner, by the way, who is now thankfully out of federal prison. He, uh, he contacted me late last week because he had something that he really, really wanted to talk about, really wanted to get out to the public. And no, it wasn't his new book, though he does have one of those uh, coming up soon. Uh, he's concerned about what now appears to be an explosion of coronavirus infections and deaths in our state and federal prisons around the country, including the one that he was not long ago released from, which has now the highest number of reported COVID-19 cases in the country at least as of now, at least according to uh, numbers being released by the Bureau of Prisons, which, by the way, are questionable. We'll talk about that in a bit uh, as well. But, uh, yeah, his uh, prison, the Oakdale facility, has the highest number of of COVID cases among federal prisons. So Governor Siegelman joins me shortly for uh, what I think is my first conversation on air with him since his release, if I'm remembering that correctly. Am I?
2: I I think I am.
1: But first, as you might have heard, uh, there was an election of sorts of offensive sorts, frankly, on Tuesday in Wisconsin after Republican officials in the state refused to postpone it or to allow for an all mail election. Uh, And after their uh, Republican friends on the state Supreme Court agreed that the best thing to do was to force a whole bunch of voters to risk their lives to cast a vote, either that or stay home and have their vote suppressed. That, as Republicans on the U.S. Supreme Court also thought that voting in person in the middle of a pandemic was a fantastic idea. So they overturned a lower federal court judge and a very conservative federal appeals court to block a meager six-day extension for tens of thousands of requested absentee mail ballots to both get to voters and to be returned to municipalities. Yes, the stolen Republican majority on the U.S. Supreme Court in what is uh, being roundly derided. At least this is a good, an upside here. Their ruling on this is being roundly decided, derided uh, as, as one of the most appalling decisions that the Roberts Court has made. And by the way, that is saying something. As they forced tens of thousands of Wisconsin voters to withstand hours long lines in rain and hail. Yes, hail. Amid a deadly viral pandemic where they voters had to dangerously crowd into consolidated polling places just to cast their vote, just to participate in their own democracy. That, by the way, as the very same U.S. Supreme Court, has canceled all oral hearings this month to avoid infection <laughs> by that same virus.
2: Wow. And they—they, they, I think they met virtually to force voters to go in person to vote in a pandemic.
1: So, you know, while we normally might have election results for you on a day like today after an election, though Wisconsin's election was held sort of results from it will not be available until April 13th at the earliest as those republican justices at both the uh, at both the state and US supreme courts have deigned to allow the tabulation of ballots postmarked by April 7th to at least be counted in theory so they allowed that much i guess So uh, when those results are finally reported, we will, of course, let you know what they are, whether they are to be regarded as legitimate or not. Uh, What are the reasons, perhaps the main reason, that Republicans were so eager to hold the election on Tuesday instead of postponing it, despite... All of the uh, Democratic governor, uh, Tony Evers, his attempts to postpone it or change it to an all vote by mail election. One of the reasons Republicans really, really wanted to risk the lives of Wisconsin voters was a key statewide Supreme Court election with an incumbent Republican state Supreme Court justice on the ballot. Justice Dan Kel- Daniel Kelly was running against the uh, progressive supported candidate Judge Jill Karofsky. And though a pickup by Karofsky would not give Democrats a majority on the bench, it would put them a little bit closer with right-wingers then outnumbering liberals only 4-3 to on the Wisconsin Supreme Court and uh, a chance then to later reverse that, bringing Democrats back to a majority on the Supreme Court, uh, at least in a couple of years. So for that... To maintain their five to two majority on the court, Republicans were willing to potentially kill thousands of their own fellow state residents, especially since a larger turnout was expected by Democrats in this election than Republicans, given the ongoing presidential primary on the Democratic side. And no such primary on the Republican side. But as of Wednesday morning, that Democratic primary now appears to be all but over. Senator Bernie Sanders ended his presidential bid on Wednesday, making Joe Biden the presumptive Democratic nominee to challenge President Donald Trump in a general election campaign that will be waged against the backdrop of the coronavirus epidemic. As uh, AP reports today, Sanders initially exceeded sky-high expectations about his ability to recreate the magic of his 2016 presidential bid and even uh, overcame a heart attack last October. But he couldn't convert unwavering support from progressives into a viable path to the nomination, it appears, with "Quote unquote electability fears, fueled by questions about whether his democratic socialist ideology would be palatable to general election voters. Although I wonder how uh, those general election voters may feel now, now that this pandemic is set in. We we may or may not ever know. Uh, eventually, there are some 20 primary states that have still to uh, you know that have still to hold their elections that were postponed due to the pandemic." Nonetheless, in his live streamed announcement on Wednesday, Bernie Sanders noted his victories, especially in the early primary states, and how his progressive movement helped move the entire Democratic Party towards key progressive initiatives, such as a $15 minimum wage, a Green New Deal, and, of course, his signature campaign issue, A national single payer Medicare for all system, which he argued is made even more important now than ever, given the millions who have lost their employer based health insurance during the coronavirus pandemic. The path toward victory, however, he noted, was now virtually impossible He called Joe Biden a very decent man while not explicitly endorsing the former vice president in his live streamed remarks, adding that his his name, that Sanders name, would remain on the ballot in states that have not yet held primaries so that he can gain more delegates and exert significant influence on the Democratic Party platform.
0: I wish I could give you better news, but I think you know the truth. And that is that we are now some 300 delegates behind Vice President Biden and the path toward victory is virtually impossible. So while we are winning the ideological battle and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. And so today I am announcing the suspension of my campaign. Please know that I do not make this decision lightly. In fact, it has been a very difficult and painful decision. Over the past few weeks, Jane and I, in consultation with top staff and many of our prominent supporters, have made an honest assessment of the prospects for victory. If I believed we had a feasible path to the nomination, I would certainly continue the campaign. But it's just not there. I know that there may be some in our movement who disagree with this decision, who would like us to fight on to the last ballot cast at the Democratic Convention. I understand that position. But as I see the crisis gripping the nation, exacerbated by a president unwilling or unable to provide any kind of credible leadership and the work that needs to be done to protect people in this most desperate hour, I cannot in good conscience continue to mount a campaign that cannot win, and which would interfere with the important work required of all of us in this difficult hour. But let me say this very emphatically. As you all know, we have never been just a campaign. We are a grassroots, multiracial, multigenerational movement, which has always believed that real change never comes from the top on down, but always from the bottom on up. We have taken on Wall Street, the insurance companies, the drug companies, the fossil fuel industry, the military industrial complex, the prison industrial complex, and the greed of the entire corporate elite. That struggle continues. While this campaign is coming to an end, our movement is not. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. reminded us that, quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, end quote. The fight for justice is what our campaign has been about. The fight for justice is what our movement remains about. Today, I congratulate Joe Biden, a very decent man, who I will work with to move our progressive ideas forward. On a practical note, let me also say this. I will stay on the ballot in all remaining states and continue to gather delegates. While Vice President Biden will be the nominee, we must continue working to assemble as many delegates as possible at the Democratic Convention where we will be able to exert significant influence over the party platform and other functions. Then together, standing united, we will go forward to defeat Donald Trump, the most dangerous president in modern American history. And we will fight to elect strong progressives at every level of government, from Congress to the school board. As I hope all of you know, this race has never been about me. I ran for the presidency because I believe that as a president, I could accelerate and institutionalize the progressive changes that we are all building together. And if we keep organizing and fighting, I have no doubt but that that is exactly what will happen. While the path may be slower now, we will change this nation, and with like-minded friends around the globe, change the entire world. On a very personal note, speaking for Jane, myself, and our entire family, we will always carry in our hearts the memory of the extraordinary people we have met across this country. We often hear about the beauty of America, And this country is incredibly beautiful. But to me, the beauty I will remember most is in the faces of the people we have met from one corner of this nation to the other. The compassion, love, and decency I have seen in them makes me so hopeful for our future. It also makes me more determined than ever to work to create a nation that reflects those values and lifts up all of our people please stay in this fight with me let us go forward together the struggle continues thank you all very much
1: that was bernie sanders obviously uh, <laughs> announced it, hard to mistake him announcing that he is suspending his campaign for the democratic nomination with the uh, leading progressive now out of the race joe biden moved to appeal To uh, Sanders supporters on Wednesday, Biden, who is backed by much of the party's establishment, told supporters at a virtual fundraiser that he had a short conversation with Sanders on Wednesday, noting he didn't just run a political campaign. He created a movement. His campaign ended, said Biden, but I know his leadership will continue Biden said in a statement to Sanders supporters, I hope you will join us. You are more than welcome. You are needed. That even as Sanders made clear that while he is exiting the campaign, he still hopes to be a force in the party, asking supporters to please stay in this fight with me. Adding the struggle continues. So Desi Doyen, there you go. Uh, Twenty five or, or more Democratic presidential candidates all gone other than Joe Biden
2: yes that's that is where we are and I think that Bernie Sanders makes an excellent plea for everyone to stay in the fight to defeat the most dangerous president in modern. US history uh, it's and, that important
1: and of course he is as he notes staying on the ballot uh, throughout the uh, subsequent primary states if they are able to hold their elections. And uh, we'll use those delegates to uh, have some power at the uh, eventual Democratic Convention, wherever, however that ends up being held. So there is that. Um, so good luck, Mr. Biden, at this point, I guess. Meanwhile, as the presidential election somehow moves inexorably forward towards November 3rd with all of the ugly battles that are going to uh, ensue as voters try to cast their ballots in the middle of a global pandemic and as Republicans fight to keep as many of them from being able to do so as possible and as Republicans on Fox News begin to pretend that the pandemic is just about wrapping up now, the death toll continues to climb in the U.S. with nearly 2,000 announced dead in the U.S. just since yesterday's program alone. And while much of the nation continues to hunker down in our homes to help flatten the curve and avoid the, yes, still growing numbers of infections and deaths, there are millions who are unable to physically distance themselves from others in our nation's prisons, including both prisoners and prison staff, both of whom are now facing infections at an alarming rate. Governor Don Siegelman of Alabama, recently released from the federal prison that is now facing an explosion of COVID cases and deaths, joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from BradBlog.com. Inside a county jail in Alabama in mid March, which is an eternity ago in coronavirus time, two inmates threatened to commit suicide if newly arrived Immigration and Customs Enforcement detainees they feared had been exposed to the virus were not removed. According to video live streamed on an inmate's Facebook page, the two detainees stood on a ledge over a common area, nooses fashioned from sheets wrapped around their necks and threatened to jump. We're not having no more people come in here with that symptom, said another inmate in the video, which was obtained by The Washington Post. We're not trying to put no more lives at risk. The three new detainees had described being brought to the facility in the same van as an individual who was visibly ill and wearing a mask. Inmates said in interviews with The Post, an ICE spokesman said he did not know whether the detainees had been tested for the virus or not. The hours-long standoff ended, thankfully, when guards moved the new arrivals to a different unit of the Etowah County Detention Center in northern Alabama, according to the inmates. So everything, at least in that case, was okay. But in the middle of a global pandemic that has much of the world now attempting to stay home in various forms of quarantine or otherwise practicing social distancing when in public, maintaining at least six feet of physical distancing whenever possible, wearing face masks and other protective gear, Between hopefully persistent hand washing and the use of various sanitizers while hospitals are facing bed and ICU shortages, not to mention their own shortages of personal protective equipment, ventilators and yes, shamefully still a shortage of test kits for the virus. With all of that going on, it is easy to overlook the millions that are being held in detention facilities, whether jails or immigrant detention centers, without the ability to physically distance themselves from others, much less enjoy access to masks and gloves and hand sanitizer. About 2.3 million people are incarcerated in local jails and state and federal prisons, according to the Prison Policy Initiative, an organization that opposes mass incarceration. Most have nowhere to go to avoid possible infection and possible death as the death rate now in the U.S., at least according to official numbers, has ticked up to more than 2000 a day in the U.S. or about one covid death every minute now across the country. There have been persistent and horrifying stories since the outbreak began coming out of the nation's jail and prison system about clusters of infections inside those detention facilities. Even as such stories uh, receive little attention in the mainstream media, more often than not, among the reports of rising infection and death rates in the general population and the hours that many media outlets spend, I would say, waste offering live coverage to a president of the United States to offer completely false narratives, blatant lies and increasingly outrageous attacks on the truth and the journalists who attempt to report it. Perhaps they could, you know, break away from broadcasting those lies by the president of the United States for even five minutes each day just to note the particularly harrowing and deadly circumstances that millions of Americans who are serving long or even short jail terms, often for nonviolent offenses, are now being forced to endure as those terms in many cases are becoming potential death sentences. And if some Americans find it difficult to empathize with prisoners, perhaps they might find it within their cold hearts to be concerned about the prison workers who are forced to expose themselves each day to intolerably dangerous conditions in those same facilities. Or perhaps you haven't considered the plight of those inmates who have yet to be found guilty of anything at all, yet are forced to live in dangerously close quarters while many trials or other hearings are now delayed due to the closure of courts because of the coronavirus pandemic. The conditions and reality of incarceration make prisons and jails tinderboxes for the spread of disease says UD Ofer, the director of the American Civil Civil Liberties Union's Justice Division. A prison sentence should not become a death sentence. Our leaders must immediately take steps to release those identified by the CDC as most vulnerable to COVID-19 with every hour of inaction that passes the greater human tragedy. Those remarks from Ofer were published by The Washington Post over a week and a half ago, but millions of prisoners and, yes, prison guards and, yes, their families remain in peril. Counties and states are releasing thousands of inmates due to the concerns, and the federal prison system is now coming under increasingly intense pressure to take similar measures. Meanwhile, as the New York Times reported on Wednesday, an hour or so before airtime today, the county jail in Chicago, a sprawling facility that is among the largest in the nation, has now become the nation's largest known source Of U.S. coronavirus infections, according to data compiled by The Times, at least 387 cases can be linked to the jail, more than have been connected to the USS Theodore Roosevelt, to that nursing home in Kirkland, Washington, or to the cluster of cases centered on New Rochelle, New York. As of Tuesday, according to the Cook County Sheriff's Office, 272 inmates and 115 staff members had tested positive. But because the vast majority of the jail's 5,000 inmates have not yet been tested, officials believe that those numbers are likely far higher. That even after hundreds of inmates have already been released early. In New York City, Jails like Rikers Island are also seeing infection rates grow exponentially, despite promises from city and state officials of mass releases of inmates. But those have happened too slowly, according to the inmates and staff and their families. Federal facilities appear to be moving even slower, and the number of infections and deaths by federal officials at the uh, reported at the Bureau of Prisons, or the BOP, website, seem impossibly small. As of April 7, the website reads this afternoon, there are 241 federal inmates and 73 BOP staff who have tested positive for COVID-19 nationwide. They say there have been eight federal inmate deaths and zero BOP staff member deaths attributed to COVID-19. Well, that is 314 total uh, infections of inmates and staff alike at all 40 federal BOP facilities, 314 total infections, while the Cook County Jail in Chicago has 387 all by itself. The federal numbers seem impossible, but we have come to expect no less from this particular federal government. The Wall Street Journal reported yesterday that a Louisiana prison guard sat alongside a sick inmate for more than an hour inside a van and his hospital room told by a supervisor he did not need a mask despite the prisoner's severe cough and other telltale signs of COVID-19. Within 10 days, the 49-year-old inmate, Patrick Jones, was dead from the coronavirus. The officer, Aubrey Melber, was back at work. Having been told days earlier to return without quarantining to his duties inside the low security federal correctional institution in Oakdale, Louisiana, a state that is right now being hit particularly hard by the virus, according to a lawyer for the union representing prison employees. On Monday this week, the American Civil Liberties Union filed a class action lawsuit against the Federal Bureau of Prisons director and the Oakdale prison warden, accusing them and Attorney General Bill Barr of not moving fast enough to save the lives of inmates from what may be the worst coronavirus outbreak in the federal penitentiary system. According to BOP's less than forthcoming numbers, in any event, of the of the eight federal inmates known to have died from covid, five have been at the Oakdale facility. Last week, I was contacted by a former prisoner at the facility trying to warn me that as another inmate had told him, the disease was going to spread like a California wildfire and that there is nothing we can do to protect ourselves. Joining me now is that former prisoner. He is also Alabama's former governor and the last Democrat, I would prefer to say the most recent Democrat, to serve in that role from 1999 to 2003. Governor Don Siegelman, whose case we have reported on here at the Brad blog for many years, was sentenced to seven years in federal prison for what more than 100 former attorneys general, both Democratic and Republican, have described as, uh, as something that had never been considered a crime before Siegelman was charged with it. A bribery, bribery-related bribery charge in which, in which Siegelman did not personally benefit by one dime and in a case so marred with prosecutorial misconduct tied to Karl Rove and Siegelman's Republican predecessor in office, Governor Bob Riley, that many, including us, have characterized Don Siegelman as a little more than a political prisoner targeted by the Bush administration and Republicans at the time as he was once seen as presidential timber As a very popular governor from a southern state and the only person in Alabama's history to have served in all four of the top statewide elected offices from secretary of state to attorney general to lieutenant governor and governor, that until he was taken down by a dubious election in which ballots were found to have been changed in the middle of the night on a Diebold optical scan tabulator. Governor Siegelman was released from the Oakdale facility himself in 2017 and ended his probation in 2019, and I am delighted to have him back on the broadcast, even under these uh, horrific circumstances. Welcome back to the broadcast, Governor Siegelman. Hey,
3: Brad. It's uh, good to be able to talk with you. The last time I spoke with the uh radio program. While I was in prison, yeah. um, I was I was immediately handcuffed and put into solitary confinement for 59 days. Uh. So, uh, I was uh, I was calling uh, one of your colleagues mm-hmm. up in uh, Northwest Tom Hartman. Yep. to I mean, yeah, yeah, report to him on uh, the progress that I thought needed to be made in the Safe Justice Act and encouraging people to call their members of Congress. And that's one of the things I want to encourage your listeners to do, is to continue to call your mayors, your governor, uh, and, and members of Congress, and to keep the pressure on to get these people out of, of jail and out of prisons that uh, pose no public safety risk, mm-hmm. that have only a few months remaining in their sentences, that are nonviolent, many first-time offenders, most of whom can, can go home on home confinement, and others who can be on an electronic monitor. But, you know, we've had uh, some wonderful support from Congresswoman uh, Bass and also Jerry Nadler, uh, uh, mm-hmm. Congressman Hank Johnson from Georgia, mm-hmm. Bobby Scott, and, uh, and Steve Cohen from Tennessee. Anyway, there's been a, an outpouring of support from the uh, from the Democrats, at least, on the House Judiciary Committee to encourage billboard to take action immediately to let these people out. My question is, why are they there in the first place? If they they pose no threat to public safety, Mm -hmm. if they are nonviolent offenders, if they only have a few months remaining on their sentence, if they are at risk because of health reasons, Mm -hmm. why not let them out? I mean, they should have been out already. The problem that this presents, when you have 1.3 1.3 million people in state prisons which is worse than federal prisons almost all of them are overcrowded same thing in jails um uh, you mentioned that the conditions are so grim yeah. people are living so close together with no protection you know they don't have the masks the gloves many of them are in communal showers they share the same soap uh, it is a breeding ground for things like the coronavirus. Well
1: let so, me let me ask you about that specifically cuz uh, I know when you reached out to me last week I uh, I could tell that you were exceedingly worried about many of your uh, your former cellmates at Oakdale and about the uh, general prison population at large amid this epidemic but Oakdale uh, you know, is being reported as having an explosion of coronavirus cases. What have you been hearing from those? Are you still in touch with those uh, that you were uh, incarcerated with at the time? What are you specifically hearing from some of those folks there?
3: Well, the, con- the conditions at Oakdale were were bad before the, the virus started. And, and, you know, if, if people can imagine... Living stacked one on top of the other, and it, it basically in a warehouse. It's a cinder block building with an aluminum with a, a tin roof.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, you, they're stacked one on top of the other. They're so close together you can actually reach out and touch the other inmate if you wanted to do that uh, while you're lying in your bunk. Mm-hmm. Some in, in one in one room in Oakdale, where I was for a period of time, we were stacked three on top of each other, not mm-hmm. just a regular bunk bed, but it was called the submarine room because you you felt like you were that's where where you were because it was so crowded you you absolutely couldn't do anything other than go to your bunk and lie down couldn't sit up in bed because there wasn't enough room to sit up but there, there is no ventilation the doors are shut the windows are locked they have fans that blow dust and and whatever else from one end of the dorm to the other uh they have stopped the fans so that now you know, you know, inmates just hear each other cough and sneeze and mm-hmm. and and you know whatever else. But you know, there's nothing to protect an inmate from breathing in what other inmates are exhaling, coughing, or, or expelling from their bodies. So. And- uh, it's a dangerous situation.
1: And there's no way, uh, have you heard, have they taken any particular uh, extra measures in the middle of this uh, pandemic to somehow separate prisoners more? Or is there just nowhere to go, nowhere to move folks?
3: Well, they're not taking any any extra precautions to, to move them. And the problem that is evident in the ACLU lawsuit is that it takes the BOP forever. To do anything, to implement anything, you know, part of the mentality is if prisons are full, everybody keeps their job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you mm-hmm. know, prosecutors, judges, lawyers, the, the the guards. You know, everybody's everybody's. It, it's a it's a system that feeds off of itself. So there has been over time. Uh, you know, with the "lock them up and throw away the key" attitude, mm-hmm. particularly on the part of, of prosecutors and judges who seek the public approval for re-election, uh, you know, to give long sentences without regard to whether it makes any uh, any any sense mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what's in the best public benefit or what's in the best interest of the, that that uh, trying to uh, rehabilitate that inmate. Mm-hmm. I want to give you one quick example, and then I, I'm going to uh, give it back to you, Brad. But mm-hmm. I, I wrote a lot while I was in prison. Of course, I had I had a lot of time to write. I had five years, so right. there was no excuse no excuse for not writing. And, and one of the things, of course, I wrote a book that's out and will be available on Amazon, "Stealing Our Democracy." But in that book, I talked about one inmate, uh, Juan Garcia. I, I struck up a conversation with him and started looking over his uh, his. His legal documents, and he had been arrested in 1994 for a half ounce of marijuana. Got a felony on probation. 97 uh, half ounce of marijuana or more, uh, uh, felony probation. In 99, he got he was uh, indicted on a, in a drug conspiracy, marijuana conspiracy. Uh, no amount of marijuana charge. He had served 19 years in prison mm. for tiddly amounts of marijuana. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are the kind of people who don't need to be in prison in the first place. Mm -hmm. And, or if they do, you know, surely to God, not for 19 years. And, you know, so what we've got to do, hopefully out of this, out of this, you know, we, we will find a way to move those people from these confined spaces to other facilities where they can be spaced out. Again, these people are nonviolent, right. and most of them, or many of them, first-time offenders, many of them with short-term, so they're not going anywhere. They're not going to try to escape when they only have three months left on their sentence. Right. But they need, Oakdale and other prisons like Oakdale around the country, need to be moving these inmates from these confined places into buildings where they can be separated and so there will be less likely of the virus uh, continuing to spread at this exponential rate.
1: And, uh, you know, I should say that uh, Oakdale is a minimum security prison. I And I, I don't know if it's fair to say it's one of the nicer facilities ah, in that wait, sense. Wait. But, you know, no. compared to Rikers yeah. and some of the maximum security prisons, I mean, I can't imagine that the uh, conditions are any better in in, in those facilities.
3: No, no, no. No, well, the the only yeah, I was I was uh, I was put into a maximum security prison at one point mm-hmm. just during the during the transition uh, to Oakdale. But uh, yeah, in many of those prisons, they are in uh, the old cells with bars, mm-hmm. and they are separate from other inmates. In some mm-hmm. cases, in some cases, they're doubled up, but. Um, what makes the camps uh, worse is that everyone is confined in this small space mm-hmm. and are stacked one on top of the mm-hmm. other in such close proximity that uh, there is no way to protect themselves from someone who has the virus who's a carrier and so it's a it's a it is a you know they're like it's so the virus is going to be like shooting shooting fish in a barrel yeah. right? they so it's, it's a dangerous
1: situation. Yeah, I mean, as I was uh, working on uh, preparing to talk to you today, I was looking at one story after another with one person after another, whether it's a, a prisoner, whether it's a guard, whether it's an attorney, uh, advocates, uh, all sort of, you know, referring to these places at this time as death traps and saying over and over again you know we're talking about prisoners who were not sentenced uh... to a death sentence and yet that is what many of them are now facing unless something is done also uh... governor uh... the um you had mentioned a, a number of Democrats uh, that were, were trying to do something on this and encouraging folks to contact their own uh, representatives. I should also note that uh, Republicans as well, at least uh, Senator Chuck Grassley, Senator Mike Lee, have also been trying to push Attorney General Bill Barr to take action here. Uh, I think they are, lo- you know, they're looking at uh, taking action of some sort. But, you know, in in this pandemic, days are the equivalent of weeks and months. This needs to move uh, quickly at the federal level. Are states doing any better as far as you can tell, Don? Are governors doing enough? Uh, is is your governor in Alabama, Kay Ivey, is she releasing any prisoners from uh, state facilities at least?
3: <laughs> no. Uh, they, in fact, they... they they went in in a for a period of time at least have gone in a in a retreat mode they shut down the pardons and parole board altogether um so no in in alabama uh certainly there's not enough being done and i would suspect in most states there's not enough being done i think governor Newsom has has uh you know Mm
2: -hmm.
3: has and and governor cuomo in new york and both taken positive action, shown some real leadership, and, um, you know, you would hope that that kind of leadership would catch on in other states, and perhaps it will. The the problem with the BOP is you can give a, you know, even the president can give an order or the attorney general can give an order, but the, the director of the BOP needs to give an order, and they need to give an unequivocal order and and not leave it to the wardens to make a decision Mm. or leave it to the prosecutor to, because prosecutors are always, generally, I shouldn't say always, Mm -hmm. but prosecutors, nine times out of ten, are going to oppose the release of of your grandmother Mm. if she was on her deathbed. So, you know, uh, they need to just say, inmates that are nonviolent, that are pose no public safety risk uh, need to be released or at least placed in another facility where they are separate separate from other other inmates right. those people who are three months away from being released anyway send them home to a to home confinement right if, or or people who are on in in uh in jails for
0: uh parole
3: violation if they can't make bail so what you're going to save the state and the taxpayers' money, or the city money, if you let them out because they're, you know, we're going to spend more keeping them in than they're going to pay in bail.
1: And again, I, I, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to underscore, you know, if if there are people out here listening to this show who, for whatever reason, are not particularly sympathetic to prisoners, I think they should be. But even if they are not. Be concerned about the staff members. Be concerned about the staff members' families uh, in all of this because, you know, with uh, an explosion of cases in one federal prison does not only affect those prisoners, it affects, uh, you know, the staff, their families, and everyone in the community uh, around them. And, of course, Louisiana, in the case of the Oakdale prison, uh, Louisiana is one of the nation's hotspots right now for all of this. Um, Governor, you mentioned the uh, uh, that the fact that uh, is they, they're closing parole and probation boards amid all of this, closing them, I guess, because of the virus they can't meet. But that means that people who might otherwise be uh, soon on their way out are, are actually being held longer than they might otherwise be? Well,
3: yes. Um, and, you know, you've got a, a confluence of uh, you know, you've got uh, both victims' advocates who want to be informed before someone is released, and prosecutors who want to be informed and mm-hmm. play a role before someone is released. But if you if you just look, don't you know? Don't talk about releasing violent offenders. Mm-hmm. You know, let's look look at releasing first time nonviolent offenders, um, and. Who posed no public safety risk?
1: Like and that, like that fellow Juan Garcia, who was sold a little bit of marijuana. Is he still in, in Oakland?
3: No, I, I, I wrote a petition for clemency for him, and, and mm-hmm. <laughs> my, one of my one of my few successes while I was there. But yes, he got I out. And, uh, I think in May of. Uh, uh,
1: 2017. Be- before before I let you go, Governor, uh, a couple of just, well, we mentioned uh, Governor Kay Ivey in Alabama. Uh, she was among the slowest to respond to this outbreak, famously saying that uh, Alabama was not California or New York, so uh, she didn't take any special precautions there at the time. I believe she has finally relented and issued a uh, a stay-at-home order in in Alabama, where there's been more than 2,000 cases and 64 deaths. Uh, am am I right about that? And are uh, folks, your fellow uh, uh, residents there in Alabama, finally following these uh, stay-at-home orders?
3: Well, actually, I think the, the 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 public was far ahead of the governor in this case. They were they were already uh, you know practicing social distancing staying at home and away from work uh so we for the most part from what my personal observation and knowledge i think people were doing it uh, before the governor uh, issued the order but it certainly is help helpful to have that that leadership from the top and we would hope that the president of the united states would get on board and and uh you know follow the advice of his uh, health uh you know the people yeah. who know often health and care and and uh and you know
1: take this a little bit more seriously. Yeah, we would hope, Don, but uh, we can keep hoping. I'm sorry to say. Don't don't, don't
3: hold your breath.
1: Yeah, not for this president. Uh, And uh, before I let you go also, I I just want to check to see uh, both how you and your family are doing right now. We've had both of your children on this show over the years. Uh, Dana and Joseph, are you guys all weathering this uh, nightmare personally okay for the moment? Yes. Dana,
3: uh, as the state would have it is here with us in Birmingham. And my son is, uh, uh, now one of the lawyers for the mayor in Atlanta. So, mm-hmm. and his, his wife is the emergency room nurse in Emory. So they're, they're, uh, he's well looked after for sure. Uh, but I'll, I will pass along your, your best wishes. And I, I, again, I want to commend your governor and, um, uh, for his leadership and, um, you know I, I would i would uh, join jane fonda's call that maybe governor newsom could also lead the country into uh, the right attitude for combating climate change
1: There's an idea. Yeah, we're all uh, very proud of Governor Newsom. Frankly, it's 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 nice to have a public official one can be proud of. I'm sure he'll screw it up soon enough. But for now, we're all feeling (laughs) maybe maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe (laughs) Maybe not. not. I hope not, uh, because I actually I do like him quite a bit, Uh, Governor Siegelman. uh, Hopefully, we can have you back in better times to talk about your your book. That is, uh, I think it's on it's on sale, but it's not yet available. Am I right about that? Stealing our democracy. (laughs) Yes,
3: StealingOurDemocracy.com will get you into our website, or just go to Amazon and you can pre-order it, and I would encourage you to do that. Also, for Amazon Prime members, you can watch the documentary that was made about my case, and it's called Atticus versus the Architect, Mm -hmm. and that'll that'll give you a flavor of what the book is about. Of course, um, you know, you can probably tell by by, my passion here that What I want to do now is uh, speak out loudly and clearly for criminal justice reform so that we can uh, protect those most vulnerable and also uh, uh, restore our democracy in this country
1: tall orders uh, ahead of you, Governor. Uh, But if anyone can do it, and if anyone can stick on it, I'm sure it will be you. Folks can uh, find the book at StealingOurDemocracy.com. We will link to it, of course, at Bradblog.com. The book is called Stealing Our Democracy, How the Political Assassination of a Governor Threatens Our Nation. Uh, Governor Don Siegelman, I'm glad you are out and about and, uh, well, now you're back in, in your house. (laughs) But hopefully you are... uh, You are safe, uh, along with uh, your family, and greatly appreciate you joining us on the broadcast today and uh, helping us to uh, ring this important alarm, sir.
3: Thank you, Brad. Look forward to talking to you again.
1: Me, as do I. Thank you. Okay, let's take a quick break. Uh, Good, good to talk to the governor. Yes, uh, it's nice uh, to hear that he's doing all right. Yeah.
2: After all these years.
1: Yeah, glad the the worst is behind him, and I do look forward to his book. Stealing our democracy. Anyway, and he's got a lot to talk about in that regard. Anyway, let's take a quick break here, and, well, we'll see what we come up with. (laughs) Right after this, you're listening to The Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
2: You must remember this A kiss is still a kiss A sigh is just a sigh
1: Yep, welcome the back. Fun it's the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com I, you know, for some reason I've just had, uh, it feels like World War II to me, with all the <laughs> rationing of toilet papers and hunkering down, so that's uh, the, the, that music has been on my mind lately. Oh. Thank you very much. Sure, sure. Um, I should have asked... Governor Siegelman, if he had heard from uh, any of Donald Trump's people about a potential pardon, I mean, after all, Trump pardoned uh, Democratic Governor Blagojevich, but I guess Don Siegelman made the mistake of not appearing on Donald Trump's TV show, The Apprentice.
2: True. And not praising him uh, fatuously (laughs) at every
1: opportunity. And you know what? Blagojevich, you know, pretty much everyone agrees that he tried to sell a Senate seat. Nobody seems to. To say, oh, he got robbed, whereas Don Siegelman, he had more than a 100 attorneys general, both Republican and Democrat, saying this guy got screwed, that this was a political prosecution. Anyway, I'll ask him about that next time. Meanwhile, a majority of Americans now, 55 percent, say that the federal government has done a poor job preventing the spread of coronavirus in the United States. You don't say That's up eight points in about a week, according to a new CNN poll, as the nationwide death toll from the virus rose above 12,000. Well, you know, frankly, I'm glad it's up 8 percent, but still, it's only 55 percent. Only 55 percent say the federal government has done a poor job.
2: Yeah, that's shockingly low when you consider that 12,000 Americans have now died.
1: 80 percent feel the worst of the outbreak is yet to come. Well, that's good. Not that the worst is yet to come, but that at least 88 percent, 80 percent get it now, while uh, most 55 percent feel that Donald Trump could be doing more to fight the outbreak. And 37 percent say they have grown more concerned about the coronavirus in the last few days, that far outpacing the just 5 percent who say their fears have eased recently. So there are 5% of Americans who are feeling better lately for some reason. About 1 in 5, or 22%, say they personally know someone who has been diagnosed with the virus, a figure that is double the share who said so in a Washington Post-ABC News poll conducted just two weeks ago. So I guess as more people know someone who is personally affected, They start to give a damn a little bit more, I guess. Just under half, 46 percent, say it is at least somewhat likely that they or someone in their family will contract the virus. And there are deep disparities by socioeconomic status and partisanship in American uh, in Americans level of confidence that they will be able to get treatment should they become ill with the virus. So it depends Where you come from on the uh, economic stratosphere, whether you think you'll be able to get care or not, if you do get hit, a majority, 52 percent, say they disapprove of the way Trump is handling the coronavirus outbreak. Did you get that? Only 50. It is a majority, but is it only 52 percent of Americans disapprove of what Trump is doing?
2: I think that that's a measure of how the corporate media is very inconsistent in how they cover this You know, oh look, Trump's got a new tone He goes right back to the same insane comments and lies that he's been telling from the White House press briefing room
1: So 52% disapprove, 45% approve Both figures, disapproval and approval, have risen since early March When 41 approved and 48 disapproved And 11% were not sure Still, just 43 percent say that the president is doing everything that he could to fight the outbreak, while 55 percent say that he could be doing more, including 17 percent among those who approve of his handling. So some people approve of the way he's uh, doing this and say that he still could do more. Also, 18 percent of Republicans think that he could do more. Uh, But I should say that's just 18% of Republicans think he could do more. Apparently, the rest of of the Republicans think he is doing a fantastic job. And by the way, as you move through these numbers, you see that, you know what? They pretty much mirror his approval ratings that have been, you know, pretty much 50-something disapprove, 40-something approve. Pretty much that have been... uh, The same for the entirety of his presidency, by and large. So whether you think he's doing a good job is just related to uh, on coronavirus is related to whether you think he's doing a good job overall and probably all related to what news outlets you watch. Exactly. So even coronavirus may not move the needle on this guy's presidency. Remarkable. Which is somewhat hard to uh, fathom. But uh, so be it. Just one more reason why we... As you suggest, need to reform our media as well. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. My huge thanks to Governor Don Siegelman for joining us today and sounding the alarm about the concerns for our nation's prisoners and our nation's prison guards and everyone else although I guess we've all got plenty to be concerned about these days. Uh, drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I am the BradBlog. I hope you will find, follow, and share all that we do there. We do count on you to get the word out, as opposed to the corporate media. So thanks for that in advance. And if you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime at bradblog.com. That is free thanks to those of you who support our work to allow us to continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.